The book of Isaiah is the Bible in miniature. Chapters 1 to 39 are a picture of the Old Testament there in verses 1 to 39 of God's message to his people and the judgment of God upon his people and condemnation. Chapters 40 to 66, which is the second section we're on, is a picture of the New Testament. We see Jesus Christ predominantly in chapters 40 to 66. We see Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. Sometimes you might pick up a book, maybe in your desire and quest to know more about the book of Isaiah, and you'll pick up some uh, notable authors who've written in the past. It's being about Christ through Isaiah, and those are good books. But I think you can go even deeper than that in recognizing that every chapter, almost every other verse, speaks poignantly and wonderfully to us about our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 40 to 66, just like the theme of the New Testament, we see the grace of God and the salvation of the Lord. Dr. Jerry Vines, who was a great preacher of God's Word for many, many years down in Jacksonville, Florida, and retired uh, just many, a few years ago, but still is on the preaching circuit, one of the great expositors of our time said this about the book of Isaiah. He said, chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah is kind of like an overture of a great musical composition. The overture begins by setting forth the major themes of the rest of the musical composition. Those who are music majors and understand it, understand the whole idea of uh, overture, and that's exactly what it is. Chapter 40 is a great passage. We've heard great preachers of the Word of God preach from us. I cannot improve on what they've done. I can't even come close to that. I can't even tie the sandals of their feet. Someone like Dr. John Getrys preached so eloquently from chapter 40. But as we look at it, we see it like a crescendo. We see like a great musical piece of an orchestra playing or choir that's singing as it reaches that great crescendo there and speaking about the goodness and the grace of God. In chapter 40, we find that the key text, which is also our theme for this entire series, is found in verse 9. God is speaking to a people that have been discouraged. you got to remember, as we'll see in a minute, that chapters 40 to 66 would be read by God's people many years after Babylonian captivity. Now, they had not gone into Babylonian captivity when this was written, but they would read it many, many years later. And if you can imagine some Jewish person picking up a scroll of the book of Isaiah and coming to chapter 40, and in chapter 40, reading about the city of Zion, interchangeably also called Jerusalem. He says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings. In other words, here is a city that when the Babylonians came, they burned down the walls, they burned down the temple, they broke down the gates, they ravaged the city, they took thousands of their men away, their young men, and put them in captivity. This was a discouraged city. This was a downcast city. You might even say in our, in our terms of the day, this was a very depressed people. And he said in verse 9, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountains. Don't stay in the valley area. Don't stay in the plain area. Get thee up into the mountains. And he said in verse 9, O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The focus here is on God. God is found, his name God is the name Elohim. Elohim is a majestic name. It's a wonderful Hebrew name that incorporates all of who God is. In Elohim, we find all of the Godhead represented in that name. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We find that, that God in that, when we see it, is not only speaking God monotheistically of one God, but speaking God of the Godhead, the all-working of God, the powerfulness 
greatness of God, the grandeur of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the, the almightiness of God, the eternality of God. He speaks to us about God. Listen, if there's anything we should major in, we need to major in God. And so the writer is saying, behold your God. Behold your God. He wants you to recognize today that he is a personal God. He is a powerful God. Notice, if you would, in the book of Isaiah, that the, the name God is used 131 times. Of those 131 times, 78 of those times is found in chapters 40 to 66. As this chapter is being written to us, I picture it this way. Chapter 40 is to us, is like a rainbow at the end of a storm. It's like the sunrise after a night of great darkness. It's like the resurrection after the dead. Behold your God. Who is God to you? What do you think of when you think of God? A little girl came to Sunday school one day, and they, the teacher handed out pieces of paper and crayons, and they said, I want you to draw something that, 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 that you can think of from the Bible. And immediately one little girl who just was very enthusiastic, she got out all of her Crayola crayons, and she started drawing very feverishly and quickly on there, and the teacher came by. Of course, this was a very caring Sunday school teacher, and she came up and she said, what are you drawing? And the little girl said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, well, how can you be drawing God? Nobody knows what he looks like. Nobody knows what God's all about. And the little girl, without even lifting up her head, she just kept on drawing, and then finally she just said, but they will after I'm done. And I remind you today, when Isaiah's done, you'll know what God's all about, amen? You'll have a picture of God. You'll go beyond just seeing God as creator. You'll go beyond just seeing God as God of the Bible. You'll see God who's real. Behold your God. Who is this God? Number one, would you notice number one? He's God who comforts. He's God who comforts. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The Israelites, the Jews, were prepared in chapter 39, verses 6 and 7, of a future captivity. How would you feel if a prophet of today a man of God got up, got on the internet, a man of sound, fundamental Bible doctrine, a man of credibility, a man whose morals are right, a man who could be, could be, could be called a man of God. He got up on the internet so all the world could hear. And he got up in his pulpit where he preaches from. And he stood perhaps on the steps of, Laura, of the White House. And he declared to everybody, judgment of God is coming. And that's what Isaiah did. Because in verses 6 and 7, he said the judgment of God is coming. Look at chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, here is Hezekiah, as we saw last week. He's just been healed. He's just been made well. And now he gets this major bomb dropped on him by the prophet of God. He's telling him, because of what you did, the Babylonians are going to come. Now the whole concept of the Babylonians did, really didn't materialize in his mind because Nebuchadnezzar was not the king on the scene. The king of Babylon at that time was a king who came and took the city of Babylon, but he had not conquered the nations. So you have to understand the whole concept of a conqueror was not in their mind. What they thought of as a conqueror was the king of Assyria and the Assyrians who Israel had to deal with. They had no concept in their mind of how great Nebuchadnezzar 
would be. But he said a day will come when a king will come down and Babylon will come down and he shall take away everything that's been passed down to you, everything that your fathers have given to you, everything has been passed down from David and from David, from Solomon and every man of God, from King Asa, King Jehoshaphat, and et cetera, et cetera. He says everything shall be taken away. All shall be carried to Babylon. And he said nothing shall be left. He said I'm going to take away the gold and I'm going to take away the silver and I'm going to take away all that you have or everything that reminds you that this was the blessing of God in the city and should be taken away. But to make you really feel it, you'll not only see the things taken away, your sons will be taken away and your sons will be put into captivity and your sons will be made into eunuchs and your sons will be made slaves of the nation. You can imagine a hundred years later when the Babylonian captivity came in and Jerusalem was laid desolate as Nehemiah said. The walls are burnt down. The temple has been burned. The young men have been taken hostage. Can you imagine some Jew picking up the scroll of Isaiah and looking for comfort and reading it? And he comes to chapter 40, and it's God giving a message to somebody to say to my people, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. We need comfort. We get discouraged, amen? We get depressed. We feel rejection, isolation, loneliness, disconnection. We need comfort. And it's like someone said, if you look inward, you would be depressed. If you look outward, you'll be distressed. So if I look inward and look at my problems, that doesn't help me. Now if I look outward at my problems, it doesn't help me. But if I look upwards, I'll be blessed. Amen? He's the God who comforts. Notice the source of comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us he is the God of all comfort. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that there, listen, grief and heartache and suffering and all these things that we go through, they come in different packages. They're all in different si- sizes and shapes. They affect all of us differently. Listen, every one of us watching this service today, we all have a breaking point. We all have a place where we're going to just feel so, so down. We're so broken, we need comfort. In the New Testament, the word for comfort is the word paraclesis. It means to console, to feel a sense of sorrow to have pity, to be grieved. Yesterday, I, last night about 5 o'clock, I got a message from one of our church families, actually a relative of a church family that we ministered to this week. The relative who was in a nursing home went home to be with the Lord yesterday. That family needs comforting. The word comfort is the name that was given to Noah. His very name means comfort. The name paraclesis is where we get the word paraclete or the word comforter, which describes the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you this morning, the God who comforts, he's the source of all comfort. Now, thank God, you might find comfort when somebody puts their head on your shoulder. And you might find, or you can put your head on somebody's shoulder. And you might find comfort when one of our pianists plays the piano and plays something like, tell Jesus all your troubles. And you might find comfort just knowing that you're around family. But I want to tell you, the source of great comfort, the source of perfect comfort, the source of the greatest comfort will ever have come from God himself. A little girl lost a friend of hers, a neighborly friend who passed away from a childhood disease. 
And as a little child, she didn't really comprehend all that had happened. And so she decided one morning she'd get dressed up kind of like in her Sunday clothes and got in her Sunday clothes and got dressed up, went next door to see the neighbor. Her mother saw her go out the door. She said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to go see our neighbor next door. She says, why? She says, I don't know. I feel like I need to be there for her. And the mother scratched her head thinking, what can you do? A little four, five, five, six, what can you do for this, little, this lady there? And half an hour went by and one hour went by and two hours went by. Three hours. Listen, four hours went by and finally the little girl came back. And the mother was looking. She says, honey, you've been away for four hours. Did you go somewhere? She said, no, ma'am. She said, where were you? She said, I went next door. She said, well, what did you do? She said, all I did was crawl into her lap, and I cried with her. Comfort's when somebody empathizes with your situation. If somebody comes alongside you. Hey, comfort is the Holy Spirit who comes alongside. Comfort is coming alongside. I'm saying to you this morning, comfort is God coming alongside of you, sitting with you and holding your hand and putting his arm around you. And though he may be invisible, you know that God's very presence is with you. He's the source of all comfort. Let me remind you this morning, the God of comfort is there for you when you're bereaved. The God of comfort is there for you when you are broken. The God of comfort is there for you when you, are, when you are left all to yourself. The God of comfort is there for you even when you're bitter. He's the source of all comfort. Notice verse 2. We see the specific in his comfort. He's telling prophets of God and the people of God, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Cry unto her. Now, the comfort God wants us to have is not something he wants in secret, in the shadows, in a cave, in a closet, in a car where your where windows are all up. No, he said, I want you to speak comfortably to my people and cry to her. What does he want them to hear? Number one, what you notice in verse two, number one, that her fighting is ended. He said in verse two, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. What is the warfare he's talking about? Listen, when things are not going right with us and God, it's normally we, uh, you and I, fighting with God. We, we disagree with God and he tells us something to do. Or we're fighting with God about something that is going on in our life. We, were, we, we find ourselves in a struggle. And in Judah, if you would, in Jerusalem, we're struggling with their obedience to God. They were struggling when it came to the worship of idols. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't just forsake their idol worship. And they struggled when it came to obeying God. And they struggled in a number of other areas. But God said the day came. You can comfort them because he said their warfare is accomplished. Listen, it's a great day. It's a wonderful moment when we realize that we, we, we must stop our fighting because we cannot fight with God. And that our warfare is accomplished when we can come along sit down and recognize we're in full submission to God and our warfare is accomplished and the fighting is ended. But not only is the fighting is ended, he says the second thing in verse 2. He says their forgiveness is enduring. He says her iniquity is pardoned. In the Old and New Testament, the word iniquity is a very strong word in the, in, in the original language. We get our word depraved or depravity from iniquity. Depravity describes just the awfulness of sin, the utmost of wickedness. We'll save someone who's just so bad and so wicked and so callous about their crime. We'll say he's depraved. And he said this about his people. Their iniquities parted. But he says something else. Would you notice the next description? He says, For she has received of the Lord's hand double 
for all her sins. What he means by that, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase of speech that we don't really understand, but it means this. God was saying, what I have done to judge her sin is sufficient. It's over now. He said the chastening is over. The fighting is done. He says she's received exactly what she should have done. Her suffering is finished. The most important thing is there's forgiveness. May I say two things this morning? Number one, maybe you're struggling in some area in your, your life with God. There's just something. There's a fight going on with you and God. May I encourage you this morning, let go and let God Secondly, in the area of forgiveness, Christians at times, they struggle about a past sin in their life, something that resurrects itself in their minds that they're bothered about. Will God forgive me for that? Well, can God ever forgive me for that? And you think about it, and you go through just, you're bothered, and, and you feel like that paralyzes you and keeps you from doing what God wants you to do. May I remind you this morning, you're forgiven. You can find your iniquity pardoned with God. There's forgiveness with the Lord. I'm thankful for John 10, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, this morning, I remind you today, he's a God who comforts. Spurgeon said this, Trouble one, you will enjoy calm yet. Poor, tried, and tempted child of God, you will see days in which you will wonder where your troubles are. No vessel that has Christ on board shall suffer shipwreck. He's the God of all comfort. But notice, secondly, he's the God who comes. Don't you notice verses 3 to 10? He's the God who comforts. But he's the God who comes. You see, these people were getting anxious. They'd gone through Babylonian captivity. And after the Babylonians, the Persians would come. And after the Persians would come, the Grecians would come. And after the Grecians, we get into the Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, and we find that Israel, the people of God, are under, under the Roman Empire. The, Roman, the Romans had them uh, oppressed. And you can imagine, these were people that were oppressed, and so these were people that were anxiously wondering, when is our Messiah coming? When is the one coming going to happen there? And verses 3 to 10 give us that announcement about a God who comes. Hey, listen, I want to tell you some good information today. When the Jews read about this, when they thought about it, they weren't thinking about the second coming of Christ as we think about. They were just concerned about his first coming. They were concerned about the one who would come in fulfilling Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that would come, that would bruise the head of the serpent. They were concerned about the one who would come to establish his kingdom on earth. They were concerned, will he come? And so we notice verse 3, we see here that the God who comes, KQ, is announced through a messenger. In verse 3 it says, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. This messenger is speaking about John the Baptist. This messenger is talking about the last of the Old Testament prophets. This messenger is talking about the one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This messenger is the one who was a bright and shining light, a burning and shining lamp for Jesus Christ. He was a great preacher of the word of God. He was the one who came to pave the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was the forerunner. In those days, when a king would make his way to an area, he sent a forerunner, an entourage with his forerunner. And the forerunner would set the way. He would get the people prepared and ready so that when the king came, it was not unannounced. And when the king came, they were not unprepared. And when the king came, they were ready to lavish the king with flowers, garlands of flowers, and accolades, and praises, and all of these kinds of things. So he went and prepared the way. But and back in those days, they didn't have Caltrans. And back in those days, they didn't have contractors and earth-moving equipment. Back in those days, they didn't have dynamite. 
might, they had to make ways through valleys, and they had to make ways through mountains, and they had to make ways, and they did it the old-fashioned way. They did it with manpower. They did it with their hands. They did it with whatever they used was the symbol of, of a hammer. They worked their way through it. So they had to make a highway for the king. They prepared a way for the king. And so John the Baptist, who's the last of the Old Testament prophets, would be the one that would announce and pronounce that Jesus Christ, God's son, would come because they all knew who Jesus Christ was. They all knew who he was because it was announced in Genesis 3.15, and it's all over the book of Isaiah that Christ would come, so he's preparing the way. He is the messenger of God. And it says here, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Why is it John's name isn't mentioned, but we know about this in all four of the Gospels? I'll tell you why. Because God wanted us to know that John, just like every preacher of the Word of God, is a voice that cries for God. But specifically, he was a voice that cried in the wilderness. He was one that the cities could not receive. He was one the people came out the cities into the wilderness area to hear this man preach. He's the one who brought a message of repentance where he said, repent ye for the kingdom of God is at hand. I remind you this morning as we think about John the Baptist as a voice crying in the wilderness. I remind you of all he, the summation of John the Baptist. He was a lone voice. He was the only voice of his time that cried out about Jesus Christ. He was the only voice of his time that prepared the way of the Lord. I'm going to tell you this morning, we don't have a lot of voices preaching God's word today, and we don't have a lot of voices crying out, but I'm going to tell you, thank God, if there's just one voice that preaches the word of God, we better listen to that voice, amen? If there's just one voice, we better hear what God has to say. He was a lone voice, but I want you to notice something else. He was a loud voice. The Bible says he cried in the wilderness. He wanted everyone to hear the message. He was a lone voice. He was a loud voice, but I praise God, he was the Lord's voice. He was the voice of God. He was God's voice crying to his people. I'm going to remind you this morning, God uses men and simple men to be his messengers to pro proclaim the word of God. And John was that messenger. Notice in verses 3 and 4, his message. The Bible says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was telling God's people, make a way. Your Messiah is coming. You better make a way for him to come. You better make a way for him to make his way to you. Listen today, maybe you came to church. Maybe you're, you're watching by live stream and you're, you're inside your heart of hearts. You just had some difficulty with God. Why don't you make a way for God to speak to you? Why don't you make a way for God to minister to you. He says, prepare you the way of the Lord. He said, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, I want you to imagine with me a desert. And you don't have all the modern tools we have today. He said, make a straight path through the desert to the city. Make a highway for our God. You know what he's saying there? Make a way where there is no way. Don't don't have excuses in your life. Make a way where there is the way. You say it's hard to get to church. Make a way where there is the way. You say it's hard to pray. Make a way where there is the way. You say it's hard to read my Bible. Make a way where there is no way. You say it's hard to serve the Lord. Make a way where there is no way. Notice he says every valley, every valley shall be exalted. The word exalted means to be built up. In that area of the world, there was terrain they would go through that was beneath sea level. You had to build it up. Shifting sand, you have to build it up. Valleys speak to you and me about the trials, difficulties of life. Either you're in a trial, you're going into a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. You never can escape a trial. But God was saying, every valley shall be exalted. As you make a way for the king to come, let him build you up through your trials. 
Let him build you up through your valleys. Don't see your valley as an enemy. See your valley as an opportunity for God to build you up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says then, in every mountain... And hill shall be made low. Hey, life consists of mountains and hills. Some of our, we have several church members that are avid hikers, and they love, they love the challenge of going up steep terrain and hills, and they understand the importance of having right shoes and things like that. Back in those days, they didn't think about shoes. They didn't have all that kind of concept. They just knew that when you, when you walked up a mountain, it was arduous. When you went up a mountain, it was tough. When you went up a mountain, you would stub your toe. When you went up a mountain, it, you'd find yourself, you'd either, you're in shape or not in shape. You found yourself just at this place. You had to really work at it. And so he says, you know what? Sometimes we have, we face these challenges in life where those challenges are like mountains we feel like we can't attain. And they feel like hills that we can't get over. Or we feel that we're out of breath before we even gotten halfway up that mountain. And he says, you know what? What you have to do in preparing way for the king, you've got to bring those mountains down and you've got to bring those hills down. He says, don't let the difficulties in life defeat you and discourage you. It might look impassable, but he'll make a way for you. Then he said, the crooked places shall be made straight. When you go through that kind of terrain, there are all kinds of places. Going through valleys, going between mountains, places like that, going through a mountain area, those crooked places, he said, you've got to make them straight. God will make those places straight for you. He'll take you from those dead ends to an open-ended area there. Then he says, he says here, then he says, when you do that, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, all of that he was saying is this. The messenger said, make a way for our God. Now, for God to work in our life, we have responsibility. We have to make a way for God to work. We've got to get a heart. You know, 50% of getting ready for a church service, whether by live stream or in person, you know, is getting your heart ready. 50% of Getting ready to do the work of the Lord is getting your heart ready. The preparation work is just as important as coming to receive. And so he's saying, you've got to make a way for the Lord. You've got to be ready to receive. We see the messenger for the Lord who comes. But notice verses 5 to 10. This is a good part. Notice here, we not only see the messenger, we see the Messiah, the Lord who comes. Do you understand what's going on here? When he speaks to us about verses 3, 4, and 5, he's talking about the Lord who comes. He says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now who is that? That's Jesus. Amen? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. This was God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This was God manifesting the flesh. This was the word made flesh. He said the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. None can say they didn't hear the Lord. None can say they did not see the Lord. Now how does the Lord come? How is he the God who comes? Number one, I want, to write, want you to write this down. He's the God who comes in person. He doesn't send a surrogate and he doesn't send a substitute. God came in person through his son, Jesus Christ. He's God incarnate. He came full of grace and truth. He came as the son of man but never gave up being the son of God. He was the son of God who became the son of man. He comes in person. People that try to use their time and manage it where they've got so many things compressed in a day schedule will sometimes send a representative to represent them at a meeting. And the representative will go to the meeting and say something like this, 
Mr. So-and-so wished he could be here today, but he sent me instead. I want to tell you something. Jesus didn't send a substitute. He came himself. Amen? He came in person. Whatever your struggle might be this morning, he comes to you in person. He sits right next to you, and he puts his arm around you. He sits next to you in person. He's the God who comes in person. Notice in verses 6 to 8, he's the God who comes because we have a life that is passing. He uses an analogy. The grass that withers and the flower that fadeth. We understand that. The only thing that grieves me about flowers is that they die. Amen? They wither up. And grass is not water dies. We know we've gone through this heat wave the last two or three weeks, whatever it's been now. And this last one was pretty warm, and I think we had one or two days there that got like 110, 113. I mean, even here in San Leandro, got like 110 degrees, if you can believe that. And we have two fig trees. One was given to us by someone, and another one my wife, wife and I bought, I think. I think we bought it. And I was trying to make sure that, you know, uh, twice a day that I'd water in the morning, water at night, just make sure it's hydrated. And there was one, one day there where I forgot to water it that morning, both of them. And, you know, early in the morning, like at 6 or something like that. And then I, so I went back at night. It was, you know, the sun had said it was about, I think, about 8.45 or 9 o'clock. And I looked at this, both fig trees, and they were all weathered up. It was kind of like the fig tree Jesus cursed. And, and, you know, it withered up and dried and died, you know, almost as bad. And the leaves, which were very, very green just the night before, were all weathered up and, 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 and they had turned yellow. And a couple of leaves had dropped off. And I, was, I said, wow, my fig tree's going to die here. So I heard of it. Put more water on it that night and went back to water in the morning. And since that day, I've been making sure that my wife and I are making sure that uh, each day we're watering morning and evening there. You know, he speaks about things that wither. They're transient. Our life is like the grass that withereth and the flower that fadeth. Our life is fleeting. Our life is temporary. And Moses said, so teach us to number our days that, I might play my, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. James said that our days go by very quickly. They're vanishing away. And notice verses 6 to 8. He comes because man's life here is short. Man's life here is Temporary. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this is the judgment. You're watching my live stream. My question for you this morning, do you recognize that your life is passing? Do you recognize that there's a day coming when you'll leave this life? Are you prepared to meet God? Do you know Jesus Christ, your Savior? Do you know for sure that if this was your last day that you're going to heaven? He's a God who comes in person. He's a God who comes because of our passing. But notice in verse 10, I'm thankful for this. He's a God who comes with power. Listen, our God doesn't come with weakness, and he doesn't come with anemia, and he doesn't come to be defeated. He comes with power. In verse 10, says, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Now, we take that for granted if we read the Bible, but a strong hand, a strong handshake, a strong hand that can hold these represents strength and power, and an arm that does not bend, and an arm that can support much weight. He says, God comes with a strong arm and his arm with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. I remind you today, our God is not weak and our God is not dead and our God is not asleep. Our God is powerful. Our God is mighty. Our God is creator. Our God who's a God who answers prayer. He's a God who is real in every life that will allow him to be real in their life. But I have something else to tell you. He's a God who comes in person. He's a God who sees our life is passing. He's a God who has power. But you notice verse 10. He's a God who comes with payment. Look what he says. He says in verse 10, Behold, his reward is with him 
and his work before him. Now Abraham put it this way. Thou art my shield and exceeding great reward. What is this reward? And what is we connected this work of the Lord that he's speaking about in verse 10, his work before him. The work he's speaking about is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for every sinner. His reward is salvation by grace through faith to everyone who puts their belief and trust in him. Listen this morning. Jesus came to die for your sins. The work of Jesus Christ was to die on the cross. He became the perfect sacrifice for sins. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect substitute for every sinner. Alan Falk cannot be your substitute. Nobody else in your life can be your substitute. The only one who could be the substitute that could vicariously die for your sins and mine is Jesus Christ and him alone, he died for our sins. He paid our price for it. The Bible says he was the just, dying for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He's what Romans 5, 8 says, God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My friend, the reward he gives, the reward he brings is this, his payment. He comes with payment. He didn't come just to be a teacher. He didn't come just to do miracles. The greatest work he did was to die on the cross for every sinner and rise again from the dead so he could conquer sin, Satan, and death. Hey, I remind you this morning, Jesus Christ comes with payment. He paid for your sins in full. Glory to God. If you're not saved this morning, you can get saved and know for sure that heaven's your home. I shared with the first hour that this past week on Tuesday night, one of our church families called me up and said, Pastor, we have a relative, an auntie. We just found out from our cousin that she is in a nursing home and not doing very well. She's lost a lot of strength. She can't speak anymore. The church member was very burdened. They said, Pastor, my family and I want to know, can you, is there any way you can make connection with her and help her? In our Frontliners will tell you, healthcare workers will tell you into, under COVID-19 that people are just not allowed to go to the hospitals anymore to see their loved ones. If you get sick, you have to go through major surgery. You're basically in there by yourself. Your loved ones can't be with you. I mean, it's kind of a lonely feeling to be there like that. The only connection you can have is that they've, they've innovated using maybe iPads where by FaceTime they can connect you by, by FaceTime with that loved one. You can see them. Brother Frank Epona was sharing with me before his mother went home to be with the Lord that God gave him the opportunity through the, the facility or the hospital where his mom was at to be able to look on FaceTime and to speak to his mom and tell, her, tell his mom how much he loved her. And thank God for, for technology like that. And so they told me, they said, Pastor, you'll be able to, you, if you can connect with her, we'll work that out with the facility for you to talk to her. I said, well, do what you can. I'll work it out. I'll, I'll see what I can do. So they worked out for Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. They, they, they were going to call me. The facility down the South Bay called me at 10 o'clock sharp. The caregiver who got me, uh, who, who reached me and called, and, and her name was Rose, and I was taught, chit-chatted with Rose for a few minutes just to get to know her. And I said, Rose, I, I don't want you to leave. I know you're a very busy person, but I need you to stay right here with this person for a few minutes while I talk with her. And the lady I ministered to, her name, her name was Frances Sweet Lady. But she couldn't open her eyes. She couldn't speak. And, and they, as soon as they had the, 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 uh, the FaceTime where, where my face was focused on her face, I said, Francis, this is Pastor Fong. Uh, can you let me know that, that, that you can hear me? And she just smiled very sweetly. I don't know if you husbands can identify with this, but it's kind of like you're going up to your wife first thing in the morning and saying something to your wife. And you know it's a good feeling when your wife smiles at you first thing in the morning. Amen? If she doesn't smile at you, either she's not fully awake or you did something bad the night before. Amen? You know? And so she smiled. And I, she let that just very, very precious 
a smile on her face. And I said, thank you for smiling at me. I said, you have a beautiful smile. Thank you for that. And we just chit-chatted for a little bit. And so I, so I, I said, I'm going to pray for you, Francis, that God will give you special grace and help during this time. And I prayed for her. And then after that, I said, now, Francis, something's on my heart I want to share with you. Would you let me share with you? And she just went like this. Her eyes were closed. She went like this. And I said, Rose, are you still there? She said, yes, Pastor. I said, would you, ask Fran- would you hold Francis's hand? And Francis, she held Francis' hand. I said, Francis, would you squeeze your hand twice to let me know that you're holding your hand? And Rose said, Pastor, she just squeezed my hand. I said, how many times? She said, twice. That means yes. Now, Francis, I want you to communicate with me. Everything you do, you squeeze Francis' hand twice. I said, do it now and let me know that you heard me. She squeezed it twice. And very carefully and much slower than I'm used to speaking, very much slower, I told her that she's a sinner. Jesus died for her sins. Jesus rose again for the dead. Jesus wants her to go to heaven. Jesus wants to save her, and she can be saved right now and make sure she has a place reserved in heaven for her. I told her about John chapter 14. After each point, I said, Francis, did you understand what I said? And she would go like this. She squeezed the hand twice of Rose. When I got to the end, she kept doing that. And every time, Rose would say this, Pastor, she squeezed my hand. Pastor, she squeezed my hand. I got to the end. I said, Francis, don't you want to make sure you have a place in heaven for you? Don't you want to make sure that heaven's your home? And I described her as I did Sunday night when I preached on Sunday night about the wonderfulness of heaven. She squeezed Rose's hand twice. I said, yes, I do. I said, well, I know you can't speak. And I said, you're probably getting very weak because now we've been talking for about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes. I said, um, I said Francis, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the way you do this is by praying. And I said, you, know, you can't pray with your mouth, but you can pray with your heart. The Bible says that if thou shalt confess thy mouth and believe in thy heart. I said, you can, you can move your lips to your heart. I said, I'll lead you in prayer. Make them your words. And I'll stop. I'll go slow. And after each phrase you pray, like, for instance, dear Heavenly Father, after you prayed that, squeeze Rose's hand so I know that you prayed. And what probably took five or ten minutes, I led her in prayer to trust Jesus Christ your Savior. When we were done, I could tell as I looked at her face, she was getting really tired. I mean, really, really tired. I said, Francis, did you pray and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior? And I waited, and Rose said, Pastor, she squeezed my hand. She did. Praise God. I prayed with her again. I said, told her how wonderful it was that she trusted Christ and made sure she had a place in heaven for her. For her. After that, I hung up and told our church member what happened. They were so excited. 30 minutes after that, I got a message from this lady's son, who I don't even remember. That This lady, suppose your family came and visited our church at a Christmas musical or something like that many, many years ago. I just I couldn't remember them. And the son sent me a message out of nowhere. He asked for my phone number from our church member. They, they sent me, he sent me a message. He said, Pastor, thank you so much for praying. My mom it was so helpful and you know, so forth. So I, for whatever reason, the Lord impressed me. He said, well, you know, I'm glad if I could pray with your mom. I said, I'd be glad to pray with her again anytime you, you feel it would be necessary. I said, can I pray with her the next few days? He said, how about this Friday? I said, okay. So he arranged for me again Friday morning at 10 o'clock. 
who got me on there. What a blessing. It was a different caregiver, and she said, told me her name. She said, Pastor, this is my name. She says, here's Francis. And as soon as she said that, Francis had a smile on her face. She waved. She didn't open her eyes, but just went like this, waved on the, on the face time. And I said, Francis, I know you can't see me, but I'm waving back too, you know, right now. I read to her Psalms 23, quoted some verses to her. I said, let me pray with you again. Yesterday at 5 o'clock, yesterday was Saturday, got a text message from her son. He said, Pastor, just want to let you know I'm thankful so much that you prayed with my mom. 30 minutes before I just called, he said, 30 minutes ago, my mom passed away. She went home to be with the Lord. Hey, listen, Jesus, he's the God who comes with payment. He paid for all of our sins. Not only that, would you notice verse 9, he's the God who comes with proclamation. He told Jerusalem, lift up your voice. Cry aloud. Behold your God. He has a proclamation. Behold your God. I say to you this morning, behold your God. Behold your God who's real. Behold your God who died for your sins. Behold your God who wants you to go to heaven. Behold your God who's almighty and powerful. Behold your God who's creator of the earth. Behold your God who answers prayer. Behold your God who comes alongside of you, who's for you and not against you. Behold your God. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is there for you. Behold your God. Then as we close this morning, he's not only the God who comforts, He's only the God who comes. Would you notice verse 11? He's the God who cares. In verse 11, we see a picture of Jesus Christ, who is our good shepherd, our great shepherd, and our chief shepherd. Notice as our shepherd for our life, the Bible says in Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Listen this morning. He wants to be your personal shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And you know, when Jesus is your shepherd, you have everything you want because the psalmist said, I shall not want. He says, there's nothing I want more than my shepherd. But notice the work of the shepherd as the chief shepherd and this good shepherd works in our life. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. One of the chief roles of the shepherd is the feeding of the flock, of taking them out to green pastures where they can eat. He has to make them to lie down in green pastures to eat. I remind you today that Jesus Christ feeds our soul through his word. He feeds your soul through his love. And then secondly, he not only feeds us, but notice, he has the, he has example here of little lambs. He gathers the lambs with his arms and carries them in his bosom. Now, if you read uh, Philip Keller's book on the Lord is my shepherd, and it's a good book, you should have that on your shelf. The whole treatise on Psalms 23. Philip Keller says this. He says that that the when the when the shepherd takes the sheep that's been wandering or far off, he takes his sheep and he puts it on his shoulder. Now, a Middle Eastern shepherd does do that. And an African shepherd does do that. They may take a, 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 a lamb that's wounded or a lamb that is wandered off and he'll put it on his shoulder. But I want you to see something very unique about the Lord who's our shepherd. Jesus could put us on his shoulder and he does, but he does something better than us. The Bible describes it this way in verse 11. He gathers his lambs. In other words, he looks for us. He finds us in our place of need. He finds us when we're wandering. He finds us where we're not supposed to be. He gathers us, and the Bible says he carries us in his bosom. He carries us where we feel his heartbeat. He carries us where we feel his warmth. He carries us like a nursing mother does with her child. He carries us in his bosom. You might be broken and distressed, and you might be discouraged, but he carries us in his bosom. He comes for the lamb, the one who's vulnerable, the one who's weak, the one who's ignorant, the one who may wander out the way, and he gathers us, and he carries us in his bosom. Then he does a third thing. He says, he shall gently lead those that are with young. In other words, you see 
these, these, these ewe lambs leading their young. They're concerned about predators. You know what that's speaking about to you and me? That sometimes in life we carry a lot of burdens. We have a lot of things going on. And there's strong leadership. But there's also gentle leadership. Just like Jacob said to Esau, I will lead thee softly. And Jesus knows our need. He knows there's times where there must be strong leadership. And he knows there's times there must be soft leadership and gentle leadership. He shall gently lead those that are with young. And maybe you're somebody here this morning. You need the shepherd to kind of feed your soul. You need the shepherd to come, come alongside and carry you in his bosom. And you may need the shepherd to kind of gently lead you on. But I remind you this morning, he's a chief shepherd. He's a great shepherd. But he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Let me close with this. He cares for you. Here Peter would say later years on, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. A preacher went to an Indian reservation many years ago. He saw a young native Indian boy taking care of a large flock of sheep. He was kind of interested how that little boy was able to lead and manage that, that flock of sheep. So he went up to him and engaged him in discussion. He said, young man, how many sheep do you have? The boy said, I don't know. I can't count. I've never been to school. The preacher scratched his head. He said, well, if you can't count, what do you do if a sheep wanders off? How do you know if you didn't lose one? He said, mister, I can't count. I can't read, but I know one thing. I know all my sheep by name, and as long as I know them by name, I know who's lost and who's not. Hey, remind this morning, Jesus Christ is a shepherd. God is your shepherd who knows you by name. Knows you by name. But do you know his name? Do you know his name? You must come through his name to be one of his sheep. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Hey, I've got good news for you this morning. He's the God who comforts. He's the God who comes. He's the God who cares. Cast your burdens upon him this morning. Let the shepherd carry you in his bosom. Let him feed your soul. Let him gently lead you, even if you have burdens. He's the God who comes in person. He's the God who comes because we're passing. He's the God who comes with payment. He's the God who comes with proclamation. If you're not saved this morning, I invite you today. He's the shepherd who's got arms open that wants to receive you. Would you get saved this morning? Tell the Lord you repent of your sins. You believe with all your heart by faith that Christ died for you and rose again from the dead. Friend, today, you're overwhelmed. You feel disconnected. I've got good news. He's the shepherd who's here for you. He comforts you. The paraclesis. Let him work in your life. Let him bless your soul. Let him build you up in the word of his grace.